find out if you're ready for love. Here's your marvelous host, Nikki Lee. Hello, and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we are going to talk to Michelle Wing, and what we're going to focus on is her work with a book called Cry of the Nightbird, Writers Against Domestic Violence. So, Michelle, it's great to have you with me today. Really great to be here, Nikki. We are gonna, we're just going to share all kinds of great things, and, and folks, at the end of the show, if you need to, come over to the archive and listen to it again. That's not a problem at all. And I will make sure to give you the link again at the end of the show. But if you go to lovecoachjourney.com, and then at the top you'll see Ready for Love Archives. Click there, and you'll see the links to all the shows, including this one. This will be at the top for the next week or so anyway. <laughs> so, so, Michelle, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in, I believe you're also the founder of uh, Hurt to Hope, organization is that right i am i am okay okay tell, so, tell us a little bit about how how that got started sure uh so, so a little bit about my background just in the domestic violence field is that well i, well, I guess sort of from a personal it starts personally which is just that i myself am a survivor of domestic violence and, and and sexual assault, and a number of years after that those incidents happened, I decided to get involved working as a volunteer and with domestic violence and, and sexual assault prevention agencies. And when I started to do that, initially I worked I was doing the main kind of frontline work. You know, I was staffing the crisis line. I was uh, going out and giving talks in the community about domestic violence. Um, I was training new volunteers, you know, all, all of that. Kind of, I went to court with people. Um, and so, you know, it's just really that, you know, front line, in the trenches, doing that kind of work. And that was mostly down in the South Bay uh, of South, uh, near San Francisco. And then I ended up moving up to Sonoma County, which is north of, of San Francisco, and I wanted to get involved again in, in, in a domestic violence agency, and so I contacted the YWCA, which is the main agency that, that has a shelter and everything in that area, and uh, contacted the volunteer coordinator, and she said, you know, we're really trying to come up with something for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is in October, and trying to brainstorm new things. What, you know, what could we do that's new and different? And so I was, I was with her, and we're trying to think about that. And the other thing that is about me is that I'm a poet and a writer of creative nonfiction. And all of a sudden, it just kind of clicked in my mind, and I thought, you know, why don't I use, instead of doing this other thing, which, um, you know, doing this sort of social work kind of thing, why don't I take what my real strengths are and do something with that, with domestic violence? Um, because a huge part of my own healing journey had been using 
writing. I had written poetry and and essays and did a lot of journaling to help me heal. So I came up with this idea and we called it Changing Her to Hope, Writers Speak Out Against Domestic Violence. And what we did was we put out a general call to the community, to the, the whole, you know, just put out a notice in the newspaper and all over the place and said, please write on the topic of domestic violence. And so um, initially, you know, I imagined that it would be survivors that would write and maybe some just general writers who would think, you know, oh, this is a topic. And we were asking for poetry, fiction, and memoir. And then uh, people wrote. And then in October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we staged several events in different cities in the county where the writers came and they did their work out loud. And so that was changing her job. You know, I was I was reading the information about how it got started on the website, and it was I had to, I had to kind of smile at one point because it, it said you know you you put out the invitation and you waited. <laughs> you know? Yes, and I've and I've done so many things like that. You know, whether whether it's a fundraising event or or something else, and you do you put it out there and you're and you're so excited about it. You know, you put it out mm-hmm. there and you can't wait to get results, and you can't wait to get submissions, and every day you check the mail, and you just wait. <laughs> you know? Yes, exactly. And, and the first one comes in, and you're like, yes! You know, so every everyone that comes in is exciting. But, uh, but yeah, I just, like I said, that, that was just so familiar, because I, I remember that, you know, the anticipation, and, and especially when you're so passionate and excited about it, you know, and you're like, people, come on! Yeah. Well, really, but, that first year... I mean, we had no idea if anyone would do it. Exactly. Yeah, so it's like, I don't know. But the amazing thing was is is that who we heard from, uh, like I said, you know, I anticipated that it would be people who had been, you know, predominantly women who who were survivors of domestic violence. Right. What we thought was this huge cross-section of the community the people that wrote in uh, were, they were um, ch- uh, adults who, as children, had witnessed their mothers being abused. Um, right. There was a man whose sister had been killed by her abuser. There was another man who had simply read a newspaper article about a domestic violence incident and was so moved by it that he wrote this stunning poem about it. Um, we had social workers and teachers right in. Uh, We had a woman who had adopted children who had been taken out of a household where there was severe domestic violence. Um, And it was just like this huge cross-section. And then, and it also represented every group you can imagine. I mean, whenever I used to give those talks out in the community before, I would say, domestic violence affects every group, you know, every race, every ethnicity, every you know, doesn't uh, every socioeconomic group, and it happened when we submitted right. these stories. We had African Americans, Anglos, uh, Arab Americans. We had um, we had gay, straight. We had uh, women. We had men. Um, we had uh, disabled. We had. I, I, I mean, it was just crazy. It was like every single group, you know, our youngest participants through the years of Changing Her to Hope 
the 13-year-old girl that wrote um, mm. about her father um, thing, and her oldest participant was 80. So, wow. You know, I tell you what, it, it, it's so awesome that, that your message reached somebody that could, that could start dealing with and healing from it at 13. That's fantastic. You know, that's... Yeah. Uh, that was one of the things, and people that, that listen very often know that, that one of my big reasons for even having the show is getting information out there that, number one, a lot of people don't want to talk about. You know, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. We're going mm-hmm. to tackle it if we need to. Yeah. And the fact that, and, and I've said so often, if, if one person hears it and it helps them, I, I've done what mm-hmm. I set out to do. Of course, I, I want to help a lot more, you know. Hi. But for every, every one person that, you know, tackling it, and even even if it's something that's, that's very personal and hurtful for me, and I've I've ended up in tears in more than one show that I've done, you know, and, mm. and trying not to let it come through on air. Right. But you know, it's 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 things that need to get out there, and I know I know things that I didn't deal with for far 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 too long, you know, and and being able to help people earlier, faster, and to start the healing process is just that that's what this is all about for me. Exactly. So. So that's that's why when when I got the and I don't remember who you or somebody else that sent me an invitation to your Facebook page, but as soon yeah. as I spotted it, I said she's got to be on my show. Somebody's got to be on my show. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you want to go ahead and give? We'll do it again at the end. But do you want to go ahead and give your website, and your Facebook page for people to take sure. a look? Sure. So, well, we, we haven't really said it yet, but um, after after four years of. Um, the Heart to Hope program, we created an anthology, which was a collection of the writings, and it's the, the book Cry of the Nightbird, and so all of our stuff is really easy to remember. We're at cryofthenightbird.com, and our Facebook page is also Cry of the Nightbird, and our email is cryofthenightbird at gmail.com, so we're pretty easy. <laughs> Once you get it, you've got it. <laughs> Yeah, very true. Okay, now, now, and when when I was going through your information and I read through the website, mm-hmm. "Cry of the Nightbird" is a metaphor. You want you want to tell us a little bit about how you came up with? Why did you use "Cry of the Nightbird"? Since obviously you are using it all over the place. Yeah. Um. Well, we were thinking about a couple of different things. One is that so often. The domestic violence, um, in a literal sense, um, often happens at night. Mm-hmm. Um, True. In, and that, uh, and and we thought the image of the bird crying out, the bird being like. And I'm going to say woman when I'm talking about this, but men can also be, men can be victims, but uh, unfortunately the statistics show that predominantly it is women that are victims. Um, But just for the sake of, um, (laughs) just for ease of gender usage, et cetera, I'm going to say women because they are predominantly the, the, the victims of domestic violence. Right. Um, The, I think of a the woman, you know, in that moment being like a bird, you know, in the night crying out. And 
but we also thought of it as um, it's it has the double meaning metaphorically of uh, you know the bird also being capable of being able to fly, being able to call out, and uh, being able to speak and say the truth to uh, to to um, reach out. And one of the uh, wonderful things that happened when we did our, our book launch was that we had musicians come and uh, appear, and they did uh, the Beatles, Blackbird, as part of our opening. And we've had that happen at several of our readings, that we've had musicians come and play that song, so it's sort of become our theme song. That's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things, the, the book itself is divided into four sections uh, according to times of day. So it's night, dawn, noon, and twilight, which kind of ties into the title of Cry of the Nightbird. And I spotted that. I, li- I like how you did that. And that way, yeah. you know, it also gives you like a different focus for each section of the book, too. Yeah, was- and so... The night section is, is the, the pieces in the night section are concentrated on that moment of crisis. And the dawn is that moment of awakening in the survivor when you say, oh my gosh, this is really what my life is like now. This, this is what, you know, because I think you don't, it takes a while for you to realize it, that, right. that you think, wow, this, this is really... It. I'm especially when things happen gradually. You know, if yeah. if it's if it's all at once, it's easier to spot. You know, because right. it's like so different from yesterday. But if but if it's just a little at a time, and and so many people do that. You know, it's it it's like well, you know, you, life changes just a little bit and a little bit. Kind of like you know, if if you don't see somebody for ten years, if you're around them every day, you, you just don't see the changes. You know, it, know. but if, in the same way, if, if things happen a little at a time or escalate a little at a time, it's, it's much harder when you're in the situation to recognize it. Right. I mean, if somebody hits you on a first date, there's not going to be a second date. There it's definitely likely. shouldn't be a second date. Yeah. Right? You know, it's, it's pretty unlikely. But that's what's so insidious about this, is that a lot of times um, what happens is that things that seem attractive to us it's particularly because of some of our cultures uh, um, lies about what it makes a, a, a nice relationship right. um, build up. And I, I, I don't know if this is a good point, point to bring this up, but some of the red flags that I see early on in a relationship are some of the very things that many of our uh, many people think are romantic. Right. Um, yeah, I'm know. I'm very big on sharing red flags because because like like we both said, people may not realize the situation is deteriorating. They may not realize that they're going from a healthy to an unhealthy relationship. So definitely feel free to share any any red flags that you want to. I'm like I said, big into red right. flags. So yeah, um, one of the things 
just even very early in a relationship, um, if you're with someone who has uh, really strong opinions about things, uh, and it can be something like having really strong opinions about what you wear, um, and, and that can be camouflaged. You know, they can say, it can be someone who wants to buy you clothes a lot. Right. And say, no, no, I like that better. And wear this. No, wear this. Um, or, or wants to order for you at a restaurant. No, you'll like this better. Let me, get right. this, you know, let me order this for you. Uh, or um, really strong opinions about your friends or your family um, to the point that it starts to become difficult for you to spend time with them. Right. So they're saying, oh, I really don't like that friend of yours, you know. I, I'm not comfortable with your family. Uh, I don't. So gradually your, your social circle starts narrowing. Uh, and but, but you're having such a good time with this person that it's like, no, but it's okay because, you know, we're so alike and we're having so much fun and... You know, and I like making him happy, so, you know, it's okay. Uh, and then somebody that uh, really wants, like, loves knowing where you are all the time. So they text you, and they call you, and they, you know, so you're constantly, they know where you are every minute of the day. Mm-hmm. And, and they're very uh, jealous, and, which might seem sweet at first. Right. You know, it's like, um, and all of those things, like I say, you know, in the beginning it can seem like, wow, he really loves me or he really cares about me. He wants what's best for me. Um, but as the relationship develops, all of those things can become, because the, the very definition of domestic violence is one partner's who begins to exert control over the other. Right. Controlling is is exactly what what keeps popping into my head as you're saying this. Because it it seems like, or it can seem like love, and the the person is is so concerned, and they want want to be with you all the time, and they just can't stand to be apart. But the thing is, it gets to the point where it's not that. It's more they have to know where you are to control what you're doing, who you're with, what you're, you know, like I said, how you're dressed, what you're eating, every right. little aspect of your life. And, and to me, that's very smothering. <laughs> you know, some exactly. people like to, something that right. that close with the other person and, and right. no separation between the two people. And, and yeah, I, I have lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> but <laughs> so now let's say, let's say all of that has happened and it's all still, you know, so far it's all been good. You've been very loving with this person and everything. But then let's say all of that has happened and he's monopolized all your time and everything. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he, you know, you have some kind of an argument and he says something really awful to you. Right. You know, really hurtful. And you get stunned. Like, where did that come from? That's right. And... And then where do you, what do you do? Who do you talk to? Because, you know, you haven't talked to your friends in months. 
and and your family uh, already doesn't really like him because he doesn't, you know, so you don't really want to go to them because they're, they are going to overreact because um, you think this is just an anomaly, but you just want a little bit of support because your feelings are hurt, but you don't want them to tell you to leave him, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and so this whole thing starts building up and, and he might calm down and then he'll say he was sorry and but really you need to remember not to, not to get him upset when he's tired from coming back from work. You know, well, and, and something, something I was thinking too is, is you, you start with, like you said, you know, if, if the person out and out hits you, that, that's usually pretty obvious, that people, right. people react to that. But the thing is, a lot of those other things, they're emotionally or verbally mm-hmm. or mentally abusing somebody, which isn't as obvious sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, when when the person lashes out at you and says something horrible, that that'll make you kind of stop and, and think about it. But but if it's just gradual, if it's just right. small things, whether it's putting you down or complaining about your taste in clothes or, or you know, right. you know, in, insulting your best friend that you've had since you were five years old, you know, right. or, or complaining about everybody in your family, you know, right. all of those things of are being done mm-hmm. to control you. And the thing is, they're they're more subtle. You know, maybe, maybe you've already always had an issue with your mom about something. And when they say, well, your mother just wants to control you, you, you just need to not talk to her. You're like, yeah, you're right. You know, so right. It's, it's done in such a way and it goes from one type of basically abuse to a more drastic, maybe physical kind mm-hmm. of abuse. Because how many people have you been around that you've seen their interaction with, with you know, somebody that, that they're in a relationship with or a family member or whatever, and, and it sounds abusive. It sounds degrading to the person, but they, they don't notice it. They're not seeing it that way. And there's a lot, you know, the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I, I didn't mean to make you mad. You know, making excuses for the person. But then as it keeps going on and on and on, it escalates. And like you said, then it's, it's something they've either said something really horrible to you or something they said to somebody else really horrible gets back to you, or they hit you, or or something that that we we think more of as abuse. And I tell you something real interesting along those lines. I was doing um, actually your your project has sparked an idea for me for something I want to do now. <laughs> so I was <laughs> I was doing, I was doing some keyboard research, and <clears throat> what surprised me are some of the terms because I'm I'm all into long tail keywords because they they work so great little seo lesson <laughs> but i was looking and and what kept popping up is people going in and this had the greatest number of hits on google and and the other search engines was what is abuse what is domestic violence you know right. so so people they they're wondering you know they're thinking is is this is this something I should be concerned about? Is this a red flag? Right. So people right. don't really, they don't right. know the definition and they don't know how to recognize it when it's happening to them or to, to you know, people they care about. Right, right. Well, I can tell you what I usually say to define domestic violence. Awesome. I was going to ask that, but go ahead. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, domestic violence Legally, uh, is so, sometimes people get a little bit confused and think the term domestic violence is anything that happens inside of a family, 
And so they think it can be something that, like, between siblings or whatever. And so first of all, the thing to be clear about is domestic violence is only between intimate partners. Okay. So, so it has to be either uh, husband and wife, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, girlfriend and girlfriend, boyfriend and boyfriend, um, exes, uh, people who've had a child together. Um, it's, you know, they can be teens. You know, it doesn't. Ha- there's no age limit. Um, but it has to so be there has to be some sex. sort of in, in a relationship between the two people. Yeah. Okay. So that's just that definition, and that's legally. You know, so it specifically means people who have some kind of an intimate relationship. Um, okay. So as, as far as domestic violence itself, what I say generally is that it's domestic violence is a relationship in which one partner uses threatening behavior in an attempt to seek control over another. Okay. Yeah, um, I agree. And, and it can include emotional, psychological, sexual, verbal, religious, financial, or physical abuse, as well as threats of abuse or violence to children or pets. And mostly, mostly we think of the physical abuse when we heard when we hear domestic violence, and that is devastating. But the verbal abuse, which is what we we're just talking about, can be so much more can be equally, if not more, harmful in the right. long term because it just devastates someone's self esteem, their ability to make choices, and their sense that they deserve true love. And when you read anthologies you will see um, over and over again in these poems and stories and memoirs people talking about the devastation caused by the emotional and the psychological and the verbal abuse, even in the present. Sometimes when that was all there was and sometimes when there was also physical violence. It was, it was the emotional, psychological, and verbal abuse that was the most devastating. That's true. Well, and, and that's not something other people are going to see the scars from. They, they yeah. may see the results of the scars and what it, make, it causes you to do and that sort of thing, but it's, it's, not, it's not as blatant as a black eye, you know, exactly. sadly. <clears throat> so just, just curious, because you, you tapped into something I haven't heard of, but I, I have some ideas that I, I know some examples. Mm-hmm. Um, the religious abuse, tell me about that. Religious abuse is when someone manipulates or or, uh, tries to control someone's uh, religion in any number of ways. You can try to force someone to uh, be part of your religion. Uh, You can deny someone access to their own religious beliefs. Um, You can... um, you know, try to make them participate in something because of, you know, you can, uh, you know, say that because of my religion, you can't have access to, um, you know, birth control, medical care, blah, 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 you know, those kind of things. Interesting. Yeah. 
Interesting. I, I, it, it is abusive. I just had never thought about it that way. And see, I'm just, I love when I learn new things when I talk to my guest. <laughs> see, this isn't just to help the listeners. This is helping me, too. So, so I always like to ask, what do you think is the hardest part of, of the work that you do, and what do you think is, is the most rewarding part? Which, which one would you prefer to start with? <laughs> I'll, I'll do the hardest part first. Okay. Um, this is interesting because we had uh, at the YWCA um, a couple years ago. We had a we got a new CEO, and she and I went to a local radio, our local public radio station, to do a little five minute spot um, for the upcoming for the Domestic Violence Awareness Month at that time. And I had just given her the night uh, the week before. Uh, a printout of all of the Hurt to Hope submissions for that year. And it was her first exposure to them. And I had just assumed that she was coming from a domestic violence background. So we went in, we did our spot, and then we came outside, and we're standing in the parking lot, and she said, she said, how do you do this? And I said, what? And she said, she just broke down in tears. And she said, how can you hold all these stories? Exactly. And I looked at her and I said, I said, oh, Madeline, are you, is is this new for you? And then I found out she had been working at a, she was a bank person. <laughs> but she had been brought in most for her skills in, um, you know, in finances and things like that. So this is all brand right. new. Yeah, and that's, that's said, a little different from one-on-one, face-to-face with people. Yeah, and she said, you know, we're, we're going, you know, I want to end domestic violence, right? Right. <laughs> and I just looked at her and I said... You know, because she was asking me, how, you know, how do you do this? And I was like, I can't, I can't do it that way. You can't, you can't go to work every day thinking I'm going to end domestic violence. Right. You'd like to, but. No. And I said, so what I do is every, you know, every story that comes to me, because that's what happens is every one of these comes to me and then I deal with each one of these people. They said, I meet them one at a time, and I hold them. Um, but, but, I, but it's still hard, you know, because these, they can be, you know, some of them are, are beautiful and wonderful experiences eventually, but there's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. And there is. So, you know, that, that's the hardest thing. And so I, I need to take care of myself um, and not get overwhelmed. Um, I'll tell you, I think, I think you're related to this. One of the hardest things I find about whether it's a show or, or coaching or article writing or, or you know, responding to emails I get is when, when you really, really, really want to help somebody, and especially when there's somebody you're already close to and, and you mm-hmm. see what's going on and you're trying to talk to them, is 
doing all that with somebody that's not ready to hear what you have to say or not oh. ready to, to deal with it. You know, and that's yeah. something, and I, I don't want to come off flip when I say this to listeners, but one of my things about, about tackling a lot of these hard topics is, is I want on some level for people to hear me that you don't have to be in a hurtful, harmful relationship. There are options. I'm not right. saying they're simple. I'm not saying they're easy because they aren't. But, and, and I've gone through this in a situation in my life where I had to tackle things that were really hard. And, you know, whether in, to the point of, of in tears every night, not speaking to people that I, I loved and cared about for various reasons that I had no choice. But the thing is, once, once you get to the other side, you realize it was so worth everything you went through to get there. You know, because mm-hmm. at some point you deserve better. And the thing is, until you take that first step, it's just not going to get better. It can't get better on its own. You've got to do it and reach out for the help to make something happen. Yeah. So it's actually, so I guess we go to my my next question with, with what's rewarding. One, dovetailing off of what you just said, one of the things that's different about doing this than when I was doing the frontline work is that Doing this work, these writers have already, for the most part, turned their lives around. Right. So when I was or, doing or you think they're interested and they're starting to, they're taking yeah, their first step. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've already just by the time they've reached me, they've already made that decision. Very to, true. Right. And they're, re- you know, they're reaching out to me. Whereas, uh, I mean, in the, when you were, I was staffing the crisis line and stuff, yes, people were reach, reaching out to the crisis line. But a lot of times, it, you know, the average woman, statistics show that the average woman will leave her relationship uh, six to seven times before she finally leaves. Right. And I don't want people to mishear that. It doesn't mean that that these women are weak or that they're uh, confused or you know anything. Don't you know? Please don't mis- mishear that. Um, what it means is it's incredibly complicated, and yes. you know there are children involved a lot of times. There's financial considerations. There might not be anywhere to go. Um, you know, it, it, it's very, very complicated, and and it might be dangerous, you know, because people say, why does she stay? Sometimes when a woman leaves, it's the most dangerous time. So, exactly. um, you know, it, it is very, very complicated, and no one should ever judge, uh, you know, about a woman's choice to leave or to not leave, because she's the only one that can know when is the best time. So I don't want any, you know, to to have anyone feel that that is any kind of a judgment on my part. But it can be frustrating when you're working in the field because you're going, oh, will this be the time? Or <laughs> is this the fifth time? Or is it the second time? <laughs> you know? Very true. Very true. Yeah. Let, let people know that you're, you're there to help them and you want to do whatever you can. But like yeah. I said, until, until that person is ready... You know, and in, and until they have every single thing in place that they need to or, or you know, okay. that kind of thing, 
they, they've got to go through what they've got to go through. But be mm-hmm. there and be as willing to help and do as much as you possibly can without forcing them into something that, yeah. that is wrong for them personally. Yeah. But something, something I tell clients, and, and here again, this is something I've personally done, and I, I have experienced the change and how much it helps, is the benefits of journaling. And even if you mm-hmm. don't journal on a regular basis, just writing down your experience and getting it out is so, so, so helpful. And something, something I mentioned to, to you earlier and something I mentioned to other people is it, something about handwriting it to many, many people is even more beneficial than just typing it on your computer. It's easier to type it on the computer. Mm-hmm. But something about physically taking the pen in your hand and a piece of paper in front of you and writing the details. And maybe maybe it's not something that you can you can physically say to another person. I, I went through that one time. It was, it was something I needed to get out. I was having nightmares, and, and they just wouldn't stop. And it hit me one morning. I'm like, you know, maybe maybe if I just tell somebody, that'll help. Maybe that would help, getting it out. And then the people I need to tell, I couldn't tell I, I, for various reasons, mainly worrying about what they were going to say or do. But I needed to get it out. So what I did is I, I wrote a letter, and I held it for three or four days because I, I said, okay, now, now I have to like have them read it to make this like completely mm-hmm. work for me. But And then I finally did. I finally, as I was walking out the door, I said, okay, read this after I'm gone, after I, I leave and go home, and then we'll talk about it later on. And the nightmare stopped that night. Wow. So, I mean, I physically, after weeks and weeks of nightly nightmares, as soon as I handed them that piece of paper and I knew they were going to read it, the nightmare stopped immediately. Now, I'm not saying it's going to work that well for everybody, and the reaction wasn't what I would have wanted, but it's still getting it out made mm-hmm. a huge difference for me. So I'm a huge believer in, in writing about or journaling about issues and, and situations that you're trying to deal with. So that's, that's why what you were doing resonated so fast with me. I was like, yes, I know this works. <laughs> And you don't have to be an award-winning writer, people. Just get it out. <laughs> hey, what you need, what you need to say, put it on paper. And I know, I know with with some people, they want to burn it. After they've done that, they they need to burn it to just get rid of of whatever remains with you know with that initial getting it out there for them. So, you know, do do what feels right for you, but at least write it down and get the words out of you. It it does help. It won't completely resolve the situation, but it will help you to at least start to acknowledge, I think, sometimes. Acknowledge what's happening and that you, you realize there's, there's something there you need to deal with. So what, what have you found as far as with people? And, and like I said, obviously, once, once they've gotten the part where it's resolved, that's wonderful that they can, they can write and share. And it, I would think encourage other people a lot. But what have you found to be the benefit to writing and sharing it with other people? I wanted to, a couple of things. First, when you said you don't have to be a great writer, one of the very important aspects of Chasing Hurt to Hope that was just key for me from the, from the beginning was that my belief was that anyone who submitted a piece to the program as long as it dealt with the topic of domestic violence, they would be allowed. They would be invited to come and read. I did not. Uh, I did not edit or eliminate people because they were 
you know, less than literary or anything like that. Right. And that was really important to me because especially with this audience, with this group, so many of them had been silenced. Uh, and particu- I mean, in so many ways, uh, but pe- as particularly as creative people. And what I found was that a lot of them, uh, one of the ways that their abuser uh, had uh, silenced them was to destroy their creative things. True. So I heard stories over and over again of uh, journals being read without permission, um, paintings being um, cut or knifed, um, right. other kinds of creative pieces being destroyed to the point that they stopped being creative beings. That they, they just shut down that part of themselves. Right. So, um, so it was a huge reclaiming of self for them to write these poems or stories or memoirs. And so I was not going to be someone who said, "Sorry, this isn't good enough." Right. You didn't get in. So I was I was wondering day. how much how much editing you all did of of the works and that. When, when I was reading over what you were doing, I'm like, you know, the editor, editor in me would be chomping at the bit to fix things, but they need well, to say it the way they need to say it, for, it would seem the, to me. Well, that was for her to hope. We did edit for the book. Okay. For the book, we, you know, that was, was like, okay, now we're going to do a book. So we contacted everybody and said, okay, now this is different. So, <laughs> right. you know, so we just, we selected some of the more literary pieces and we did go through an editing process. So, but, but for the initial phase, we did that. Um, and then you'd asked me about the, the process of writing and, and for healing and everything. And I know that for me, for me as a writer and a survivor, I always say it's kind of like I have, um, I have all of these, you know, things lurking around in the basement or whatever, you know, that's all this blah, this mess. And right. when I can, I, I, I can go back into that and I pick up just one troublesome thing and if I can put it into a poem, it's like placing it into a little canning jar and, you know, putting on the lid and then I, I get to put it right up on a shelf and it's all neat and tidy, and it's contained, and it's done. And it, it's not... And, and it's you know done. what? And you're back in charge again. You're the one yeah. in control of how it's yeah, being dealt it's, with. It's not gone, but it's not, it's not swamping, you know, periodically flooding and swamping the basement floor anymore. It's up on a shelf in a little poem... In that little can- in that little candy jar, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. And, Very true. You know, I like that just, example. Yeah, that's the way it works for me. And and what I found with the writers for Changing Her to Help is that for so many of them, it was just this huge cathartic moment because many of them uh, wrote about things that 
you know, they wrote about things that they were remarried and they had never fully told their current spouse or um, they had just never, uh, never, re- never spoken the truths out loud. The writing was one part of it, which was huge. And then they right. shared it with me, which was huge. And then, because domestic violence happens in such isolation, you know, you always think you're the only one living with it. Then we all got together in October, and we had these nights where they read, they, they stood up in front of an audience and they read their piece out loud. So they had this experience of speaking the words. It was so powerful. And then there were other people there who were also reading their words. And it, so they had instant community. Exactly. And so it was like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. So that was... You, know, you know, sometimes all we need to know is we're not the only person dealing with something. Exactly. You know, that's, that's such a huge first, I don't know, first step or, or... But it just, there's so many things in life, it's just nice to know you're not the only person dealing with something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was sort of unanticipated. I, I just hadn't really realized how important that part, piece of it was, and, and it was huge. Everybody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you know, they just loved the fact that they got to be in a room full of people who knew what this experience was like. And then the audience, you know, you know coming up and saying, thank you, you know. Exactly. In, in a much more... Uh, non-threatening way it was that's kind of like the the first time i ever went to a writer's conference i felt like Uh i was home i'm like everybody here loves writing and reading as much as i do (laughs) yes i know i know that that one (laughs) you know it's just it's nice to be with a group of people that's something that's so big a part of you they they get it you know because so many people you, you talk to and, and especially when i was first starting to write and and i said you know i finally was determined i was actually going to do it after putting it off for like 20 some years i said okay i'm just going to do this and it was so nice to be around people that didn't get blank stares and their eyes glaze over when you talk about the the fun of creating a character or or developing the outline for the book or you know getting to getting to the end you know mm-hmm. but yeah, it was just, it was so cool. I just, at one point it was funny because I was going from one program to another and I just stopped and I looked around and went, they all love the same stuff I do. <laughs> you know? I know. So, mm-hmm. it, it can it can help in a positive or a negative situation. It's, it's yeah. nice people get it. So, yeah. now there was, there was a teenager at your high school that, that I, I read about in, in one of the things I was reading that you, you kind of jumped to some conclusions about her situation. How, how, how is your perspective on that? What was it initially, and how has it changed? This is yeah, something that I, I think I think people are going to be able to relate to this. They may not admit it right this second, but they are going to relate yeah. to this. I actually did a, a, a guest blog post about this just recently because it's something that's just always stayed with me. There, when I was a teenager, I just happened to be. It was classes were in session and. Uh, I happened to be in, we had this long hallway that um, that was just echoey, empty most of the time when classes were in session, and I happened to be out there doing some errand for teachers. And there were lockers all the way down the side. <clears throat> and there was a couple, a boy and a girl, standing by one of the lockers. And 
just as I rounded the corner, I happened to see the boy haul off and hit the girl really hard. And what I thought in that instant was, she is so stupid. I would never let anyone hit me. And what's interesting to me, of course, later is that uh, is what I didn't think or do. Right. I didn't. I didn't think he's a jerk, or oh my gosh, that poor girl. Um, I didn't think oh, I should go to the guidance counselor's office, which is right around the corner, and tell someone. Um, I didn't think I should try to find her. I I didn't know the girl, but I didn't think I should try to find her at lunch and see if she's okay. Um, uh, You know, all of those things. It didn't occur to me, you know, and this is partially a kid thing, it didn't occur to me to tell an adult. Right. Um, but all I thought was that she was stupid. And so a few years later, when I was in my early 20s, I found myself in an abusive relationship. And it, you know, it started subtly. And then finally the day came when he hit me. And that day, she flashed before my eyes. And I thought, oh. (laughs) And um, I've never forgotten her. I've never forgotten her. And all the years that I've worked in the field and all the people that I've helped or tried to help you know, there's always been this sense of wanting, as I, when I wrote the blog post, it was, I said, um, you know, I think of her and I hope she's okay and I hope she can forgive me. And then after I wrote that sentence, I thought, I wrote, I thought for a minute and then I said, I hope I can forgive me. <laughs> That's true. And Very true. Yeah, I, I read that, and I'm like, you know, so many people, you just, you don't, so often you just don't want to get involved. You know, you don't want to put yourself in the middle of something. But there's there's so many ways to do things to help that you you don't have to jump. Well, and it's not safe to jump in the middle of something like that. Yeah. You know, plus you're, you're going to make the, the abuser mad. You never know how he's going to do. I mean, that was... I was even watching a diagnosis murder rerun last night where the the woman's boyfriend was hitting her. And and she went over to talk to Dr. Sloan, and she says, no, please don't call and complain about the music because every time you do, he takes it out on me. And and that was that was perfect timing for us doing this today. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's so true. We don't realize that sometimes if, if you don't handle it tactfully, you are going to make it worse for the person. You just never know how a person's going to react to something. So what would be some things, if a person does see something like this, what would be some ways they might could help without causing an immediate situation? Because like I said, jumping in the middle, 
that that's no. going to that, that's cause more problems. So what, what are some things that, that you yeah, might be able so to suggest that people can do? I, I guess one of my main points with the story is that um, one of my main points was not to, was my frame of mind was that it was victim blaming um, and now I have such empathy for her. Um, but but beside that, if you actually are witnessing something, um, if, if you actually are witnessing domestic violence, you should call the police. Um, don't do it within sight. You know, don't um, you know? Don't make it obvious that you are doing it. True, because you don't want to get. Um, embroiled in it but definitely if you are witnessing domestic violence you should call the police because you might save someone's life um, and um, if you know someone who is in <clears throat> a domestic violence situation um, or just you see it when it is safe in other words, if she is alone, then I would give her information, resources, information about local domestic violence agencies, uh, crisis line number, you know, offer, uh, you know, don't don't get don't get personally involved. Don't you know? Don't say you can come to my house. You can you know. Don't do that. But get, you know, try to locate her. Uh, give her resources to um, a, a crisis line, a, a shelter, uh, you know, find out what that is in your area. There are national crisis lines as well. We had a technical glitch. Internet went down. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take a couple minutes and just kind of wrap things up. First of all, we were talking about ways to get help. And I want to give out the National Domestic Violence Hotline number is 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. And numerically, that's 1-800-799-7233. And that is the national number, but they are able to get you local resources. So definitely check that out. If you or somebody that you care about is in a situation that you suspect is domestic violence, please give them a call. Michelle also asked me to mention that all the proceeds from the sale of their book, Cry of the Nightbird, goes to the YWCA of Sonoma County to uh, help fund their domestic violence prevention work. So it's definitely a very worthy cause. And remember, 50 different pieces were written by 38 different people, and you're talking about a very wide variety of people that were either personally impacted, somebody they cared about was impacted, or they were just touched so much by a story of domestic violence that they heard either from a friend or in the news. And I wanted to share a great review on her website by the California Journal of Women's Writing Writers. I'm going to read you one paragraph. There's a whole page. It's a long, long review. It's the kind of reviews I write. But there's just one paragraph I want to share. She said, What I like most about this anthology is the diversity of the voices and stories it shares. The heterogeneity highlights the devastating scope of domestic violence and refutes the stereotype that 
victims are always women and their abusers are always men. In addition to the familiar cases of women battered by men, Cry of the Nightbird features the voices of men, children, and women abused by same-sex partners. Michelle Wing herself falls into the last category, and she poignantly reminds us in her poem, Even a Woman, that though her girlfriend stood at just five foot four and 115 pounds, even a woman can make you run. Besides bafflement, I didn't know a woman could be the bad guy, too. Victims of atypical domestic violence often feel ashamed, as the husband of Tainted Vows does. He felt ashamed and less of a man. Who would even believe him? Who would believe that he, six feet tall and 190 pounds, got attacked by a woman five foot four and 130 pounds? By including their voices, Cry of the Nightbird validates their experience, making it easier for other victims to come forth. Now, I just want to make sure to give you all the information so you can find not only Michelle's website, but also mine. And feel free, there's a contact page on my site, so feel free to, to reach out anytime. Now, the website for Michelle's site is www.cryofthenightbird.com. Facebook page is facebook.com slash cryofthenightbird. And email cryofthenightbird at gmail.com. If you want to listen to the show again, and I encourage you to listen again if you want to, and share it with friends of yours if you want to, feel free to share any of the information from my shows. I am going to put it on my site at lovecoachjourney.com slash, you guessed it, Cry of the Nightbird. And there will be, after the show airs on Divisions Radio, there will be an MP3 player where you can listen to the podcast on lovecoachjourney.com slash cry of the nightbird. And until next time, this is your love coach, Nikki Lee, saying, are you ready for love?